you know, as I was thinking about today's passage, I was, I kind of got to thinking about this because as we, you know, we live in Dubai, we come over here, and uh, I think Matt Jones just had this little, how far is the flight from the UK, like eight hours, nine hours, so we do like 16 hours from Dubai, so that's a, a little bit longer flight, so it's a long flight, and you got to fill the time somehow, and so on this most recent flight, I was looking at the movies on the plane and seeing what was available, and uh, they had all of the Marvel movies on there. So I thought, okay, let's do, the, let's do the Avengers. And so I watched, in a row, I watched Avengers Infinity War and Avengers Endgame, right, back to back. And, um, and I was reminded that in Avengers Endgame, if you've seen that, most people have, there's this moment where, you know, there, there's Thanos. Thanos is the big bad guy, right? He's trying to wipe out the whole earth. And so there's this moment in the movie where Thanos and his army are on the verge of victory, and uh, he's, he all, he's got all the infinity stones, and he's just got all he's got to do is he's got to snap his fingers, and he's going to wipe out the whole world, basically. So he's got it all. He, he's ready to go. He's ready to do his snap. And he looks at him, and he says, I am inevitable. Remember that? I am inevitable. My victory is assured. There's no way you can defeat me now. You may as well just give up. That's what Thanos is, is doing and, and, you know, and I thought about that because I thought that as, as we follow Christ, if you're a Christian in this day and age, you're going to face opponents who think that they're inevitable. They feel like Thanos. They feel like they've got all the power. They've got all the strength. In Dubai, we live among Muslims who think that, you know, they've got the biggest yacht, they've got the tallest building, they've got the fastest cars. They take that as proof that their God is best, that their way is best, that their culture is best, that the, the Christian Bible is riddled with errors. Why should we ever listen to it here in the U.S.? Maybe some different kinds of issues. We're surrounded by a, a secular culture that looks at Christianity and says, Christianity is it, just superstition. You, 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 Christianity, you, you hate people, you harm people, you're on the wrong side of history. We are inevitable. That's what secular culture says. And I don't think it's getting easier anytime soon, whether you're in the Middle East or in the secular West. It seems like by 2030 or by 2050, the consequences of holding fast to biblical truth are going to increase as the cries of those who are mocking God's word keep getting louder. And so the question that I'm asking as we come to God's word today is, how do we keep trusting God when the mocker seems inevitable? How do we keep following after God when, the, when, when those who are all around us are saying, that's worthless, that's a waste of time, you shouldn't do that? That's the question I want to put on the table as we turn to Isaiah 36. Go ahead and turn there to Isaiah 36, because... You know, mockers of today act like they have all sorts of brilliant new ideas, but in fact, it's kind of just the same garbage that's been around for 3,000 years. So I want to dig this morning into Isaiah 36 and 37, two chapters. It's a, it's a long passage, and so I'm not going to read the whole thing for the sake of time right now, but to set the stage, I want to read at least the first bit. So let me read, starting in Isaiah chapter 36 in verse 1. I'm reading from the ESV. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. 
And the king of Assyria sent the Rob Shekeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there came out to him Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. And the Rob Shekeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. How can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Verse 11. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshakeh said, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you? and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? Then the Rob Shekeh stood and said in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine, and each one of you his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of the Suravim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? But they were silent and answered him not a word. For the king's command was, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rob Shekeh. As soon as Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. We'll stop there and let's pray. Father God, as we open your word today, and as we look at this passage and we see this episode from history 
about mockers taunting the name of the living God and about how you respond to that. May we learn lessons for ourselves in our own time. May we learn a truth that we need to hear in a day when mockers mock the name of the living God, in a day when we have the opportunity to collapse in timidity or to stand with courage. May we, by this passage, be fortified to live for Christ, to cling to his word, and to hold fast to truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, we read the passage, and we're asking this question. How do we keep going? When mockers mock, when opponents are inevitable, how do we persevere as followers of the living God? That's the question I think this text is asking. And if you've got the outline in front of you, we're going to kind of try to hit the answer under two headings. And the first heading is the mocker's challenge. The mocker's challenge. So in our passage we just read, our mocker is the king of Assyria, King Sennacherib. Sennacherib was kind of like a Thanos of his day. He was a guy who in his youth, he helped his father seize the throne of the most powerful empire in the world of that time. Now Sennacherib is king in his own right and he's got some problems. He's got issues because he's sort of over some of these southern territories, including Judah, but they're supposed to be paying taxes and paying tribute and they're not paying. And so King Sennacherib is going to set out to show them that he is inevitable, that he's the powerful one, that he's in charge. So look at 36.1. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. So he didn't just come to one city, he came to multiple cities. The historical records tell us that he spent two years besieging Lachish, which was the second most, city, most important city in Judah at that time. And eventually he destroyed that city. And so now that he's conquered Lachish, there's nothing in between him and Jerusalem, the capital. So victory is inevitable. Sennacherib is going to win. But he's already been gone from home for a while. It took him two years to defeat Lachish. And so he would really like it if he could avoid another long siege, if he could just get them to surrender. And so what does he do? Verse 2, the king of Assyria sent the Rab Shekeh. That's a, a title. It's not the guy's personal name. It's kind of like his, his chief of staff, the general of his army, the number two in command. That's who this guy is. So he sends him from Lachish, where his army had been, to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. It says, with a great army in verse 2. So here's the bad guys. They've got their army. They're coming up to Jerusalem. And then in, on the other side, we've got King Hezekiah. Hezekiah is the king of Judah. Hezekiah knows that Sennacherib is coming. He's tried every which way to avoid this. He's tried to pay him off with paying this, this huge ransom, but it's not enough because Sennacherib, he wants blood. And Hezekiah, he's a good king. There's a lot of bad kings of Israel and Judah that you read about in the Bible, but Hezekiah, he's one of the good guys. He's a good king. He's a faithful king, so he's, he gets ready for war. He digs his famous tunnel to ensure water through the city during the siege, and he calls the people to trust. We have a, another account of the same story in 2 Chronicles. It says in 2 Chronicles 32.6, Hezekiah gathered the people and spoke encouragingly to them, saying, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him, for there are more with us than with him. Hezekiah goes on. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God. 
to help us and to fight our battles. And the people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah the king. And so in this conflict, you've got Hezekiah trying to call upon the people to trust in the Lord. And you've got the opponents that are calling upon them to do something else. So verse 2, we have this chief of staff, the Rob Shakeh, verse 2. He stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. So he kind of sends his delegation out there. Hezekiah sends his own delegation. Verse 4, then the Rob Shakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? So here's the mission of the chief of staff, the Rob Shakeh. His mission is to get God's people to surrender. And so his method is to undermine their trust in Yahweh. That's how he's going to win. If the people can stop trusting in Yahweh, then the opponent is going to win. And see, the truth is that mockers are all the same. Whether they're in Assyria, or they're in Israel, or in the UAE, or in the United States, mockers are all the same. What they're, what they're trying to do is they're trying to undermine trust in Yahweh. What did the serpent say in the garden? He said, has God really said? That's what mockers do. They're trying to make you trust your eyes, trust what you see, trust the world, trust your flesh, and to make you believe that following the God of Scripture is a losing cause. That's what mockers do. And so here, the mocker's challenge, it takes the form of a long speech. He's going to make this long speech. We already read it. Let's kind of break this speech down into five arguments that are being made by this mocker. First of all, his first challenge is that God's way is too simple. God's way is too simple. So Isaiah, here's Isaiah. We're reading the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is the prophet. Isaiah has been going around preaching during this time. And Isaiah has been calling upon this generation to trust. Like in Isaiah 12 too, it says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Or Isaiah 28, 4, it says, Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Isaiah is saying, God's people, you need to trust. Trust in God. He, he is faithful. He will deliver you. But then here's this mocker. And in verse 4, he says, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Verse 5, he says, Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for word, for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? He's saying trust doesn't win battles. He's saying trust doesn't save you. Trust is mere words. And then in verse 14, he doubles down on that. He's not just talking there to the messengers, but now to all the people of Judah in verse 14. He says, do not let Hezekiah deliver you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Verse 15, do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying the Lord will surely deliver us. He's saying, Hezekiah, he's just got words. That's all Hezekiah has. He's just, Hezekiah is just throwing Bible verses at you. And maybe that's going to help you with the little problems, but it's not enough for the big problems. That's the accusation. Don't you know that God's way is too simple? Don't you know that God's word is not enough? Don't you know that trust isn't going to get you out of this one? That's the challenge. Is he right? Do you think he's right? 
Do you think that we as followers of God are missing what life is really about? Are we, are we missing the life that we could get with, with pursuing money and pursuing comfort and pursuing pleasures and realizing our own identity and avoiding harmful words? Is he right? Is God's way too simple? Is what the Bible says, is, is, it, is, it, too, is it foolish to follow the Bible? Is it just mere words? That's the challenge. And so here's these Judeans, and the city is packed. You know, everyone's up on the city walls trying to see what's going on down here. And beyond this meeting, beyond the water pool, they can see this huge Assyrian army that's ready to take their city captive and kill all of them. And you can see the the power of the challenge. Maybe God's way is too simple. Maybe we've been backing the wrong team here. Maybe this is just mere words. And right as soon as you start thinking that, there comes the second challenge. Second challenge in verse 6. Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it, such as Pharaoh the king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. So if you picture the geography at this time, just to put it really simply, Assyria is in the north, and Egypt is on the bottom, and Israel and Judah are in the middle. Okay? Assyria, Egypt, top and bottom, they're both really powerful empires. And then here's Judah, not quite so powerful, in the middle. And so Assyria is coming against Judah, and some of them have this bright idea, hey, let's go down to Egypt and get their help against these bad guys from Assyria. And you always said that's a bad idea. It's a bad idea. Chapter 30 Just a few chapters before in Isaiah 30, God is challenging this thinking through the prophet Isaiah. In the beginning of the chapter, God says, that's the thinking of stubborn children who carry out a plan that's not mine, who go down to Egypt without asking for my direction. He says, if you're going down to Egypt, you're looking for strength outside of me. That's not trusting in me. That's not trusting in God. Don't do it. That's what God says about trusting in Egypt. But here we are years later, and what are God's people doing? They're trusting in Egypt. And so, so the, the, this Rob Shakeh, he, he's found a weak point. It's a weak point in, their, in their, the consistency of their practice of following after God. And we could say the challenge this way. We could say the challenge is that God's people are too sinful. God's people are too sinful. He, he's saying, see, like you say, you, you talk a lot about God... But, but you don't even follow God consistently. Like you, you say that you're, oh, like God is important, God's first, God's the best, but you're not even doing the stuff that he tells you to do. You're not even obeying God as his own people. So you just kind of obey him when it's convenient for you, but when something else seems like a better way, you, you go that way. And so why are you suddenly so serious about following him now? It, it, it's a pretty good argument, actually. Sometimes mockers say things that are true. Sometimes God uses mockers to convince us of our uh, our own inconsistency and our own unfaithfulness. And so in our own day, mockers will say things like Christian churches haven't protected minorities and they haven't protected children or women. Or they'll say that Christian missionaries have caused harm and they'll point out historical injustice committed in the name of Christ. And in a lot of cases, they're right about those things. And they'll say... See, you Christians aren't serious about your own beliefs, so why should we take your beliefs seriously? And see, we need to take that seriously. If our actions have given others cause to to mock God, we we should grieve that. 
That should devastate us. And if, and if we are those who have been kind of, so to speak, making alliances with Egypt, with trusting in other sources of hope and comfort and power other than the Lord our God, we need to stop that. We need to not keep going down that path. We need to turn back to God in repentance. But let's never grant the point that our own moral inconsistency disproves the truth that God has revealed. The sin of Christians does not make the gospel of Jesus Christ untrue. In fact, the sin of Christians is proof that the gospel of Jesus Christ is so needed. And so the challenge, he's already said that God's way is too simple. He said that God's people are too sinful. That's this challenge. And he goes on with a third challenge, which is that we could say it this way. We could say God's word is too confusing. Look at verse 7. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Now track with me. This one's a little more complicated, but this guy's trying to make a theological argument. And so, you know, what could go wrong when this pagan, you know, army guy makes a theological argument? So he, he kind of brings in his own pagan theology here. And so in this sort of pagan, Canaanite, Near Eastern theology, the thinking would be that gods are territorial, that each god belongs to a certain piece of land and oversees that piece of land. And so there are local gods for each country. And in each country, they all have their own local god. And you worship those gods that belong to that place to make them do stuff that's good for you. And the more, you know, the more altars you have and the more places of worship you have, the more you can get that god to do. And so one of the things that Hezekiah has done as king is that he is, you know, that Israel, as you know, they, they kind of got tempted by the idolatry of the Canaanites and they, they started worshiping Baal and all these false gods. And so they would have these altars around. So one of the things that Hezekiah had done is he's trying to get rid of that. And so he's breaking down all these high places and all these altars and he's trying to make them worship Yahweh only and not worship all of these false gods. And so this guy, he seems to be aware that Hezekiah has broken down a bunch of altars, but he gets confused in his theology and thinks that, oh, if he's breaking down altars, he's taking away worship of the true God, not of all these false pagan gods. And so he kind of puts two and two together and gets seven here. And he says, oh, your God must be offended with you. Like your God, you're, you're taking down altars of your God, of the God that belongs to this land. Surely he's not going to help you. Your God is mad at you. That's why we've come to get you. And see, the thing is that mockers are terrible theologians. This happens in our day, too, that mockers will, will open the Bible and they'll try to, like, say, oh, see, this verse says this thing, and, the, you know, they sound really somber about it, but, but mockers are terrible theologians. They don't understand what God's word is saying, and so he's espousing here a theology of ignorance. It's a theology that doesn't reflect anything that a true follower of Yahweh actually believes. They didn't believe that if we take away altars of pagan gods that God is mad at us, but that he thinks they believe that, and he's responding to that as an argument. But what's really dangerous here is the argument under the argument. And what, that, what, what the mocker's really saying there is he's saying that God's word, what God says, it's too confusing. It's just too confusing. You just can't understand it. See, you're saying that God's word calls you to trust. But look, I'm telling you not to trust, and guess what? I've got, I, I can say a bunch of stuff about God too. I can make a theological argument too. 
And see, have you ever heard this kind of an argument? And sometimes what mockers do is, is they're kind of playing for a tie. What they want to say is, hey, you've got some verses, and guess what? I've got some verses, and so we both got verses, your verses, my verses. Hey, let's just get rid of all the verses. You know, we, it's like, you know, even Stephen, we both have verses. Let's just decide this on other grounds. Let's decide this argument on the grounds of our, our version of morality, or our version of identity, or our version of philosophy. And see, what's happening is, because the mocker can't prove with sound exegesis and sound biblical interpretation that Scripture supports their view, they're trying to move the battlefield away from the Word of God. Because the Word of God is just too confusing. That's what they're saying. And it goes back to the garden. Again, that's what the serpent was doing. He's trying to say God's Word is too confusing. There's an audience for this kind of an argument. And so as long as I believe that God's word is too confusing, I don't have to follow it. I don't have to obey it. I don't have to submit to it because it's just, it's off the table. It's too confusing. Let's just, you know, go with the cultural pressure. Let's follow our own idols because we don't have to be under the authority of this book. And so the, the, this mocker is going on with these challenges. And then he comes to his fourth challenge. And the fourth challenge, the last argument, is that God's power is too small. God's power is too small. Look at 36.18. He says, Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of all these other lands? Who among the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? Remember, what did we just say? They believed each different land... Each has its own territorial God. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, hey, guess what? Judah is not the first place that Assyria has come for war. We've been to a lot of countries. We fought a lot of battles. We've defeated a lot of countries. And all of those countries, they all had their own gods. We've defeated other gods before. And so the point is, your God's no different. There's nothing unique about this Yahweh of the Bible that you follow. There's nothing unique about your God. There's all a lot of gods out there. They're all kind of the same. Our way is better than all of theirs. And so look at, look at 37.11. 37.11. He says, Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you too be delivered? The implication is, no, of course you're not going to be delivered. We, we defeat gods. The gods aren't special. They don't have that much power. And so the Assyrians are saying that there's nothing unique about this God of Judah because his power is too small. There's no power here. Like so many today, they're saying, hey, there's a lot of religious faiths out there, and they're all just kind of interchangeable because really at the end of the day, they're all kind of just made up. This religion, that religion, that religion, they're all just made up. None of them are real. There's no power here. In 2 Corinthians 32, talking about the same situation, 2 Corinthians 32, 19, it says, And they spoke of the God of Jerusalem as they spoke of the gods of, all, of the peoples of the earth, which are the work of men's hands. So they talked about the real God as if he was just another one of these fake gods. And they say, you know, they're saying it's very cute that people all have their own little gods and, they, you know, their own little prayers, and that doesn't even help them in the end, because what matters in the end is human might, is human power. That's what's inevitable. 
Because the mocker can understand that there might be such a thing as a God who is different than all the made-up gods. They can't imagine that there might be a God who stands alone. There might be a God who, in fact, does have unsurpassed power, a God who could rule over history in such a way as to have a plan, yes, for the the judgment and defeat of his people, but also for their ultimate restoration, that there could be such a God. He can't imagine that there could be a God who is able, through his own resources and his own power, to defeat a seemingly invincible army. They can't imagine that. They don't have that category for that kind of a God because God's power is too small. In this mocker's challenge, it has an impact. Look at 36.11. So here's Team Hezekiah. They're getting worried about morale among their people. And so they say, hey, hey, do you mind just like talking to us in Aramaic? It's the diplomatic language. You know, we can converse among ourselves, but then these other people won't understand it. And so in other words, they're, they're kind of saying, hey, let's, let's just keep this between us. We don't need all of the people of the city to hear all the stuff you're saying about your power and about God and so on and so forth. After we get to verse 13 in this, in Rob Shakeh, he, he escalates in verse 13 and he says, no, no, my challenge is for everyone. I'm not just talking to the leaders here, I'm talking to all the people and I'm challenging, I'm saying, hey, listen up, y'all. And here's the challenge, it's a multiple choice challenge. Option one is surrender. It's go along with the program, you can go along with life, yes, maybe you'll be in exile, but you, you, know, you can kind of go out, you can submit to the king of Assyria, you can have a chance for prosperity, that's option one. And then there's option two, which is to keep trusting in Yahweh. And what that's gonna mean, that's gonna mean a long siege. We're gonna surround your city, we're gonna starve you out, we're gonna try to destroy you, eventually that's gonna lead to extermination which means that all the people in the city who make that choice to keep trusting Yahweh, per this mocker, what they're facing is that they are doomed with you, verse 12, to eat their own dung and drink their own urine. That's the result of this siege. It's pretty bleak. It's pretty horrible, as he so colorfully puts it. And so what's the king going to do? What's Hezekiah going to do? How is the king of Judah going to respond? Is he going to surrender to exile or is he going to keep trusting in God and likely end up with his mutilated body hanging up there on the wall? Let's pause the story right there for a second. Pause the story and let's rewind. Flashback 35 years, okay? 35 years before this event that we're talking about. Isaiah chapter 7. Turn to Isaiah 7. Just for a minute. Isaiah 7. We have a different enemy, but a very similar situation. And so at this point in Isaiah 7, the challenge is we've got, you know, we have the the two kingdoms, Israel and Judah. They're, They're split up. And so in this case, Israel joins up with Syria. So they're kind of their neighboring kingdom. And Israel and Syria together are coming at Judah. So again, we have the king of Judah threatened with an enemy coming down from the north. And so look at chapter 7 and verse 3. It says, The Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz. Ahaz was the king at this time. This is 35 years previously. So Ahaz is the king of Judah. Ahaz is the father of Hezekiah. So it says, Go meet Ahaz where? At the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Does that place sound familiar? It should, because when we read Isaiah 36, this is the same location 
where the confrontation took place in Isaiah 36. It's not an accident. And so maybe at this point we've got four-year-old little Hezekiah looking out the window of the palace and kind of observing this scene in front of him. Maybe he heard the prophet tell his father, the king, verse 4, do not fear. In verse 7, thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. Or verse 9, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Because on this occasion, the mockers challenge has already happened. And what, what's in the balance here is King Ahaz's response. Will he surrender or will he trust? It's the same two options. And what does Ahaz do? Well, he doesn't pick option two. He doesn't trust Yahweh. Instead, he finds his own deliverer. Guess who he gets? Assyria. He makes a deal with Assyria, the kingdom of the north. And, and, and so, follow me, the reason why Assyria came into Judah in the first place is because Ahaz, the king, chose not to trust Yahweh. He didn't trust Yahweh to fight his battle for him. He needed Assyria to fight his battle for him. And that's why they're troubling his son 35 years later. And so to kind of paraphrase the rest of Isaiah 7 and 8, Yahweh responds to that by saying, okay, Ahaz, you'd rather have Assyria than me? Guess what? You can have Assyria. You get Assyria. That's what you're going to have. So that was Isaiah 7. So then fast forward back to Isaiah 36. A generation later, here we have the son of Ahaz with the same position as Ahaz in the same place as Ahaz facing the same decision as Ahaz. And that decision, the decision for these kings... And the decision for you and me, as we go through this world and face opposition, the decision is, will I trust God or not? In this decision, in this moment, in this conversation, in this life choice, in this interaction, as I think about my whole life or about this next moment, will I trust God or not? That's the question for me and for you, because you are going to face the mocker. The mocker is coming for you. He's peddling his view of God, his distorted little twisted view of God, and the mocker thinks that he is inevitable. And the mocker you face might be mean and threatening and violent, or he might be the nicest, kindest friend in the world. But either way, he's going to tell you, don't trust God. Don't trust God. There's a better way. There's a different way. You don't have to trust God. And see, when this mocker is going to come, many so-called Christians are going to fold. 1 Timothy 4.1, now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. This happens. We see this happening in our own age that where Christians who were once clear in their profession are following after the ways of the culture. They're following after syncretized accommodation with the idols of our age. They're following all of the world's ways of peace and comfort and success. They're not living by trust in God. The mocker's coming. The mocker is making disciples, many of them, in our day, in our age. And all of us are going to face those moments where it seems like your only choice is to live and prosper as one who is going to surrender and go along with whatever seems inevitable in your generation, or to choose 
to trust in God and face the consequences of that, which may end up in defeat and death with your trust fixed on God. A few months ago, I had the privilege of baptizing a brand new believer from the country of Afghanistan. This is a Muslim from one of the least reached countries in the world. He came to Dubai, met a Christian, heard the gospel, and came to Christ. No one in his village had ever heard the gospel before. No one in his family, no one among, among his acquaintances had ever heard the name of Jesus Christ. And he heard the gospel in Dubai. He believed. We baptized him, and he went back to Afghanistan, and he's telling people he knows about Jesus. And just this week in my inbox, I, I got an update from one of our elders who was talking to him and said that the news is, is really not good about our, our brother in Afghanistan. In recent weeks, he's been, he's been mocked and he's been called an infidel and he's, been, um, he's not been paid money that he's owed and he's not able to work because people are finding out that he's followed Jesus. He can't make a living all because he's following Christ. There's consequences of choosing to walk in trust. And that's real. That's today in this world now. Today, and the consequences that we face may, might not be to the same degree as our Afghani brother, but they are of the same kind as we do face real consequences for choosing to trust in Christ. But the question then that this text poses for us is, will you join the mockers? Will you go with their way? Will you become one of them? Will you join the mockers or will you join the martyrs? Will you be willing to trust even to the point of death? That's the question the text is asking. And when that question comes, when that day is in front of us, what you need to withstand the mocker's challenge is our second heading. We could call it the martyr's courage. The martyr's courage, because threatened with martyrdom, here's what Hezekiah doesn't do. Hezekiah doesn't act like a victim. He doesn't say, oh, you know, poor me, poor me. Look at 37.1. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. Hezekiah is not trying to save face. He's not trying to prove that his decisions were the right ones all along. But in front of everyone, Hezekiah realizes that, that God is dealing with us here. He's demonstrating grief. He's demonstrating repentance as he comes before the Lord. 37.3, Hezekiah says, this day is a day of distress, of rebuke. He realizes this is, this is not undeserved. The dire consequences that our people are in today are because of sinful choices made by our people in the past. It's a day of rebuke. It's a day of disgrace. Hezekiah has done a lot of things right in his time as king, but he needs to own up to his own sins along the way and lead the people to do the same. And Hezekiah doesn't presume that God is going to deliver. He doesn't assume it's not a name it and claim it gospel. If I, if I trust in God, then I'm going to get everything I want. It's not that, verse 4. He wants to hear from God, so he sends his messengers to get the prophet Isaiah. By this time, Isaiah is an old man. Verse 4, look what he says. It may be that the Lord your God will hear and will rebuke. He says, it, it may be. I don't know. God doesn't owe us anything. God doesn't have to work for us. But it may be that God will do something for us here. And then ultimately, what does Hezekiah do? What Hezekiah is going to do, he's going to go before the Lord. He goes straight to God. He makes a beeline into the presence of God. The, the king Hezekiah here, he's ready to be a martyr, but he's hoping. And unlike his father, he's trusting. 
And so as this desperate situation becomes more desperate, and as messengers are bringing more of the same threats from Sennacherib, Hezekiah keeps turning to God. He prays to God, and in this prayer, we see the basis of this martyr's courage. Look at 37.14. 37.14. It says, Hezekiah received the letter from the hands of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord, and he spread it before the Lord. He got this letter, and he brings it before the Lord. He's saying, Lord, this is what they're saying about you. Lord, these are the kinds of accusations that these mockers are making about you. Lord, you see this. You know this. Because Hezekiah, he knows. He knows that God is sovereign and that God is omnipotent. Look at verse 14. He, he, um, sorry, verse, uh, verse 15. He prays to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, O God of Israel, enthroned above, um, above the cherubim, you are the God. You alone, all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. He's saying, God, you are the one who's all-powerful. This Sennacherib, he claims to be the great king of, of all the earth, but in reality, Yahweh is the most powerful of all warriors. When the mocker says, I am inevitable, what he's saying is that I am stronger than your God. But see, Hezekiah knows, we see it in his prayer, he's saying that God, you made heaven and earth. It all belongs to you. God, God made it. God rules it. He knows the true God is not part of this world. He's not part of creation. He can't be controlled by any part of creation. But God is outside of this world. He made the world. The world belongs to him. This God rules over the kings. He rules over the nations. He can do whatever he wants in his creation. Hezekiah knows that God is omniscient, that God is imminent. When he's spreading this before the Lord, he's saying, Lord, this isn't about me. It's about you. See, and we should know that. We should know that when, when mockers are challenging us, they're not challenging us personally. They're challenging the Lord. They're saying things about the Lord that aren't true, and God knows that. God sees that, and so he's saying, verse 17, he says, incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. See, he's trusting God to preserve the glory of his own name. He's saying, God, I know you see this, because you see everything. God, I know you know this because you know everything. So God, will you act? God, will you do something? God, are you going to let this go on? And Hezekiah knows. What he knows is that God is a savior who wants to be known to the ends of the earth. He says that. And these Assyrians, they think that all gods are the same. They think that all these gods are small. But Hezekiah says, verse 16, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. There's not a different God for different countries. There's only one God for all the world, he says. And all those other gods, look at verse 19, were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. So then look at verse 20, kind of the conclusion. He says, so now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are God. You see that? He's not just praying for himself personally. His prayer isn't just that, hey, God, let me get out of this with my life. That's not what he's praying. He's praying that God would be known. He knows he lives in a world where God is not known, where so many like this Rob Shakeh are opposing the name of God. And he's saying, God, we know that you want to be known. We know that you want more people to know you and to worship you. So God, would you please act in this situation right now that we face in such a way to increase the knowledge of you among the earth? That's a prayer of faith, a prayer of trust. 
Because friends, if we think that the purpose of God is to give us what we want, then we'll be very tempted by the mocker's challenge. But if we see that God is real, and that God is the creator, and that God relates to us not to make our own dreams come true, but to show his glory in our salvation, then we'll also see that what is good for us is not to get what we want from God, but to realign our priorities and our passions to what God has already said. What we need is not more human power. What we need ultimately is more of God. Because the mocker is asking, who do you trust? But when he asks that question, he's really asking, who is your God? What is your God like? And when the challenge comes, when that challenge comes, Hezekiah has an answer. We see his answer here. And what about us? What about you, Delray Church? When that challenge comes to you, are you ready with an answer? Because you know God. Do you know God like that? Do you know God in such a way that the truth you know about him informs your response to the challenges of your day? Do you know what he's like? Do you know, do you, do you saturate yourself with all that God has said about himself? Do you, as we read in Ephesians 3 at the beginning of the service, do you, being rooted and grounded in love, have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God? Is your understanding of God like that? Is it saturating your whole being and your whole life? See, and if you're going to live for God in this age, that has to be true of you. Because there are so many challenges and so many oppositions out there. And see, when these mockers are bringing challenges, whatever else those challenges are, they are first of all challenges to your theology. They are challenging your theology. And what we see in our passage, that a military challenge is first of all a theological challenge. And that's also true of our opposition, what your, your medical challenge your missiological challenge, your marriage challenge, your sin challenge, that's going to come back to ultimately a theological challenge. And because the mocker's challenge is a theological challenge, the martyr's courage is a theological courage. That's what you need when you're faced with martyrdom. Or any lesser threat, you need a theological courage. Not human courage, not self-sufficiency, not masculine bravado. What you need is theological courage. Theological courage is what happens when you're ready for the mocker because instead of wasting the hours and the days that God has given you, you have spent that time, you've spent those minutes and those hours and those days and those years in studying the word of the God in such a way that you know the God of the word. Theological courage is the natural result. It's what has to happen when you are so saturated with the biblical vision of God that you see the mockers' challenges and the mockers' rewards for the, the silly counterfeits that they actually are. When the mocker says God's word is too confusing, theological courage says you're wrong. The word of God is clear and it is sufficient. When the mocker says God's way is too simple, theological courage says, no, I, I'm going to keep trusting God. I can keep trusting God. Even in this, I can keep trusting God because trust is not just mere words. When the mocker says that God's people are too sinful, theological courage says, yes, we are sinful. I am sinful. Most of all, I'm most aware of my own sin. But let me tell you how God delivers foolish and sinful people like us. 
And when the mocker says that God's power is too small, theological courage says, oh, just wait and see. Just look back and see. Look forward and see. Look and see what God has done and look and see what God will do. God's power is not too small. Theological courage is not something that you manufacture suddenly at the moment of opposition. It's something that you build over time. Remember back in 36.1, what does it say? This is the 14th year of King Hezekiah. The historical books tell us that Hezekiah has spent those 14 years undoing the idolatry of his fathers. We talked about that. Why? 2 Chronicles 31.21 tells us. It says, Every work that Hezekiah undertook in service of the house of God and in accordance with the law and the commandments seeking his God, he did with all his heart and he prospered. What that's saying is that Hezekiah has just spent the last 14 years making this choice against his culture, against his family history, to dig into the law of God, to study the word and the commandments of God, to know what God has said in such a way that he can set his heart to obediently follow what God has called him to be. And when this man needed theological courage, that theological courage was there. See? It's like a while back I was building Legos with my youngest son. And, you know, I kind of like him just showing off my great Lego skills from way back in the day. And I got a bunch of pieces together and I kind of built this bridge. And I sort of threw it together very quickly. And it was big and it, and it looked really nice. But then he said, oh, like it's a bridge. And like, let's put the Lego guy on top in the middle. And, the, you know, the, the weight of the two guys in the middle of the bridge, the whole thing collapsed. It wasn't a good bridge. But what if I had stayed there for longer than five minutes and kept adding bricks and adding bricks and fortifying the bottom and fortifying the top and adding a brick after a brick after a brick? Sooner or later, that bridge would be strong. And eventually that bridge, if I kept building it and I kept adding onto it, that would be a bridge that, that a person could stand on and not break because that bridge has been fortified and that bridge is strong. And see, that's why we study the Word and that's why we take classes at the Delray Bible Institute. What's the, what's the little word? Derby. We, we take classes at Derby and while we go to small groups and while we sit in Sunday services, we need to keep learning, keep growing so that our theological courage can be fortified like that bridge. And see, that's why we're doing the training we do in the UAE, why we're equipping pastors, really equipping them for the global church, because there are so many out there that don't know the name of this God. And so we need some people of theological courage to go and tell them. And so we've got to raise up such people. And what's true on the mission field is true here as well. Because I don't know if you're called to be martyrs. I hope not. In the end, Hezekiah wasn't. But I know that as strangers and exiles... Your calling and my calling demands the theological courage of the martyrs. And so it calls every one of us to keep digging, to keep reading, to keep hearing until we have that big theology that can withstand the challenge of the mocker. So to wrap up our story, Hezekiah prays, Yahweh responds. This is a very unusual passage later in Isaiah 37. I, uh, Yahweh is giving an answer directly to this mocking pagan king. And we can't read the whole thing, but kind of guess what is what God said. Guess what, mocker? Hezekiah's theological courage, that's, that's well-founded. Because God says, I, I am omniscient. I am imminent. Verse 23, he says, whom have you mocked and reviled? 
against who have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. He says, I am sovereign, I am omnipotent, verse 26. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from the days of old what I now bring to pass. He's saying, I am a savior. Verse 33. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mount against it. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And God's going to say, okay, mocker, you don't believe me? How about a little demonstration? He's saying, I, I, I think I've heard enough from your messengers. Maybe it's time that I send a messenger of my own. So verse 36, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all but dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived. The mocker is not inevitable. Sennacherib was not as inevitable as he thought. And I wish I could say that Sennacherib was humbled, but that wouldn't be true. Because he went home and he pretended like he won. And he decorated his palace with relief carvings that commemorated his victory and siege over Lachish. Now they're in the British Museum. You see them last week. You probably saw them last week. Joan's family. Uh, he left an inscription about this invasion. Sennacherib said, As for Hezekiah, I shut him up like a caged bird in his royal city of Jerusalem. He doesn't mention in the official record how the cage got open and the bird got away. And Sennacherib reigned for 20 more years. He never made it back to Israel. He never got to Jerusalem. He never conquered there. And so our text kind of skips ahead, and here's the rest of the story. Verse 38. Some years later, it says, As Sennacherib was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech and Sharazar, his sons, struck him down with the sword. And that's the end of the story which is telling us that if Yahweh is fighting for you, that you may be encircled by the most powerful army in the world, and you're safe. But if Yahweh is against you, you might be in your own home city that you're the king of, in the temple of your God, surrounded by your sons, and you're not safe. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked, says in Galatians 6. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. And I wish I could say here at the end that Hezekiah's courage never wavered, but that wouldn't be true either. Because if we kept reading, we'd come to Isaiah 38, we'd see some theological courage in the face of illness, but then we come to chapter 39 and we'd see his courage kind of start to falter, as now we've got a new enemy, the Babylonians, and he's showing off his wealth to them. And what that's telling us is that the hero, the hero of this story is not Hezekiah. The hero of this story is Yahweh. Yahweh, God, the God of Israel, the God of us, the one who saved this city so that all the people of the world may know that he is the Lord. This Yahweh doesn't always rescue the way we want him to. After all, a hundred years later, his judgment fell on the city of Jerusalem, the people of Judah. There was defeat, there was exile, but if we kept reading in the book of Isaiah, past that exile, we get to Isaiah chapter 40, you know what we would hear Yahweh saying to the exiles of Judah? What do those people need in their darkest night of exile? 
they needed some theological courage. So in Isaiah 49, it says, Go up on a high mountain. Lift up your voice with strength. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold your God, because for these 27 chapters of the book, Isaiah is offering not tips for getting out of exile, but a vision of God to behold in exile. Because what the exiles of Judah needed most was to behold their God. What Hezekiah needed most at this moment was to behold his God in Delray Church when it seems like opposition is increasing and when it seems like the cost of faithfulness is increasing. What we need is to behold our God. To behold our God. And so brothers and sisters, when the pain comes and the mocker mocks, I know that you'll be ready. Because here on Sunday morning, because Wednesday night in the Bible Institute, because tomorrow morning at your table, because in your friendships and in your small groups and in your families, you are opening this word and you are beholding your God. And as you behold him and as you know him, you will find inexhaustible courage. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word that you give us. Thank you for the hope that is there, for the grace that is there, for the courage that we can take, even in the midst of opposition, even in the face of martyrdom. The words you have given are not mere words. Your words are clear. Your words are true. Your words show us your glory. and Your words show us our Savior, Jesus Christ. May we walk by faith in him. May we know that the salvation that we get in him, that by believing in him, we can have forgiveness of sins and life in his name. And that is a real hope that we can cling to, that we can treasure, no matter what the world throws at us. So give us courage as we go. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.